Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Tickford Racing has confirmed that it will field a fifth Mustang as a wildcard for Zach Best at two solo driver rounds this year. The Super 2 points leader will make his solo supercars debut in Darwin before a second appearance at The Bend. He will then drive for the team at the Bathurst 1000 in October as well. Former supercar CEO Sean Seamer's new job in the USA has been revealed. He will head up the US arm of Gravity Media. Gravity has long had a broadcast services and facilities partnership with supercars and has been supercar's technology partner since 2020, a deal brokered during Seamer's reign as CEO. There's plenty of night racing news around this week. TCR Australia will race under lights for the first time at Sydney Motorsport Park next month, and there will be an S5000 race that finishes in the twilight as well. And the Bathurst 12-hour will feature a nighttime practice session for the very first time this year. There will be a 40-minute session starting just before sunset on the Friday evening. The May date for this year's 12-hour means shorter days and more nighttime running for the race itself. There will be around 90 minutes of racing before sunrise on the Sunday, and the finish is right before sunset. Speaking of the Bathurst 12 hour, Sun Energy One Racing has locked in its lineup led by team owner Kenny Habul. He'll be joined in his Mercedes by Lucas Stoltz, Martin Conrad, and Jules Gunon. Now, Gunon is actually one of the reigning winners of, uh, of the race, having triumphed as a factory Bentley driver back in 2020. That car will effectively be run by Triple Eight alongside the T8 entry that will be raced by Shane Van Gisbergen, Brock Feeney, and Prince Jeffrey Ibrahim. And the supercar season continues this weekend with the Perth Supernight, which will be the first time the category has been able to visit Western Australia since 2019 due to the pandemic and the rather strict border controls we've had on this side of the Nullarbor. And joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that I'd happily take the undrivable car just so that he could have the semi-drivable car, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you? Are you still my neighbour to the east in Adelaide or have you returned home to the Gold Coast? I am still over in Adelaide, Andrew. Mm. Meant I was able to get out to the uh, historic Malalar meeting actually on the weekend. Oh, wow. Uh, some uh, good fields of cars out there highlighted by a great group of historic sports sedans. It's great to see that uh, that category really up and about. Very the cool. facility itself, though, I must say, is looking a bit tired and in need of some love. Um, but actually, speaking of dusty racetracks, Tell us about what you were up to yesterday. What yes, is well, this Charlie Creek Speedway we're hearing about? Yeah, well, look, I, uh, I I don't know how much I'm actually allowed to say about this. It's uh, I don't, I'm not sure on the legalities of it all. But let's just say one of the perks of living in the country, uh, which we are doing at the moment, is that you might just have a mate who decides to turn the contents of his clay dam uh, into a mini speedway for dirt carts and three-wheeler motorbikes. So uh, we did a bit of skidding around the paddock on Monday. It was a pretty uh, pretty fun way to spend the public holiday. I've got to say I have some, um, particularly riding, I've got a little a little three-wheeler bike with a 
with a pretty hot motor in it and uh, trying to get that thing around required a fair bit of sort of straddling the seat and the inside guard and I've got some bruises in some pretty interesting places today. Um, but, yeah, good fun, good fun, I have to say. When it's uh, just one of those nice things about living in the country. You never know what someone might want to build in their paddock. I definitely have no further questions about those bruises. We can uh, we can move on. That's a that's a very good idea. Don't ask any more about that. Well, as I mentioned, for the first time in three years, the Supercar Circus is heading west for this weekend. I think that in itself will be a bit of a novelty for everyone. That's uh, there's something exotic about getting uh, getting over that border. Now it's a it's such a unique circuit, uh, Stefan. Short and sharp, fairly narrow. Um, do you think we could see the form guide shaken up this weekend at all? Well, at the moment, anything but a Shane Van Gisbergen or a Chaz Mostert win is a bit of a shake-up of the form guide. Obviously, those guys have won all nine races so far between them. Uh, Wanneroo is the only current track that Shane has, hasn't won on, uh, which is an interesting little stat. But oh, wow. that's obviously impacted that. by the fact that, uh, yeah, they haven't raced there the last two seasons. So, as you say, we haven't really got much of a form guide for this place. Um, but it's so tight in qualifying, you know, anyone can pop up into the mix. At the moment, it's sort of hard to even know which Ford team is going to be the strongest. Like um, we've seen those DJR cars qualify well and then and then fall back in the races. Really interested to see how these Grove cars um, progress and continue after the form we've seen from them lately. And and someone like Slady is getting closer to a podium as well. So, yeah, there's there's all sorts of possibilities, I reckon, for the weekend. I think one of the question marks is is going to be, you know, tyre degradation. Wanneroo is famous for its high degradation, but it was resurfaced a few years ago and it's certainly – I don't think the surface has tailed off quite as much um, as the – I think the previous resurfacing was about 2004 where there was lots of grip and it disappeared really quickly and then the track really did chew tyres probably worse than ever. But, you know, the, the track has still been used a fair bit over the past few years, even without supercars there, because state racing never really stopped in Western Australia because, you know, once the once it was in its little bubble, every life sort of carried on as normal over here. Um Dunlop is fairly confident that the track won't be too hard on tyres, particularly with Super 2 helping rubber up the track. But at the same time, I think it's always going to be at the higher end of the deg scale just because the track's surrounded by sand, the sand blowing across it all the time. Um, do you have any thoughts on what we could see regarding tyre wear this weekend? And, and if it does sit on the higher side of the deg scale, is that just going to play into Shane Van Gisbergen, who's just the ultimate tyre whisperer? I think that's a pretty fair assumption that uh – Shane uh, is obviously very good at that, and the Triple Eight cars seem to be pretty good over a race run as well. So, um, yeah, no doubt. I reckon he's the favourite going into the weekend. It, uh, it was resurfaced ahead of that 2019 uh, season and the last uh, Perth Supernight event that we had. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how, how much it has degged, how much that sand that blows across the track has sort of worn away the top part of that surface and exposed the, the stone that sort of creates the, the deg. Um, like you, you've actually been on this track since <laughs> since the last time supercars have been there. I have. Do you have any uh, any insight into what it looks like? It's sort of hard to say because I haven't done a lot of racing there over the course of sort of the last ten years or so. But the track feels good. I, I certainly think that, like I said before, when they did that resurfacing in two thousand four, I think it was two thousand four. Yeah, it was. They were so uh, they were so fast that first year, and then it was back to just ripping tires to shreds by the second year. But it was a different surface they used this time when they when they did it again. Um, and I think that it has proven to be a fair bit more durable. So I don't think we'll see extreme tire deg, but it's hard to say. It's almost kind of a shame, but don't you think? Like, remember, we actually had some pretty amazing racing there when 
it was chewing tyres to bits. And it wasn't necessarily making tyres fall apart like what we saw at Albert Park or something. It was just massive deg. It was kind of a fun characteristic of the circuit. I wouldn't be overly sad if it if it did come back. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those characteristics that's fairly unique to be extreme on the deg scale. And sometimes it creates awesome races with um, real cliffhanger finishes. And sometimes it, it means there's a bigger field spread than than normal. So it can it can work both ways. But I think just it's a big talking point. It's something different. It's something they'll be they'll be talking about and will be a big feature of the races. So um, yeah, it's just uh, the nature of the beast. Well, just quietly, I understand Brock Feeney uh, was here in Perth this week skidding around in some radicals to get some laps at Wanneroo. Apparently, he's not only never been to the track before, but he'd never been to Western Australia before. So I think the border might have actually been closed um, before he was born. Maybe that's the issue. But uh, he'd never actually been over here before. So he was getting a bit of early insight. Uh, apparently, he went fairly well, as you would expect. So, uh, yeah, there's a few guys that haven't actually raced in the main game at Perth before, but the fact that it was a Super 2 round in in 2019 um, means that, you know, uh, that most of those, most of the newer drives of the field have had plenty of laps there. Anyway, one team that has been struggling for form lately is uh, Erebus Motorsport. They had a brilliant finish to last season, but the last few rounds in particular have been pretty tough. Uh, I grabbed CEO Barry Ryan on the phone to chat about that kind of ropey form they have at the moment and uh, and where he thinks the team is at right now. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the expectation is so high on us. And I was jotting down some notes the other day and, Basically, since we the start of last year, we've had a car in the top five at every single round, at one of the days. So when you think about it like that, some of these other teams are, you know, high fiving when they get a top five for the whole season. Yeah, and it's it's funny to think that you know, all the rounds last year, and the, all the rounds this year, we've had one car in the top five on one of the days. So. It's something we should be all pretty proud of as a team, like to bring two rookies in and do that, and and the expectation the media has on us now, I guess, and we have on ourselves that when you have a bad weekend, it's like what's happened, you yeah. Know, it's like the end of the world, and you know we get down on ourselves, and you know as as you should if you're not getting the results you want, but it's not actually that bad. So you know, yeah, Will's had a little bit of a slump, I'd say, but you know. I don't know. He'll, he'll be right there. Yeah, he's um, he'll find his feet again. And um, you know, I don't think we've gone the wrong direction with the cars or anything. Maybe we started a bit wrong at the Grand Prix, but by the end of it, they were you know fifth and eighth in that last race. And if we would have started with those cars on Thursday, it would have been a whole different story. Will's qualifying form certainly hasn't been great at the last couple of rounds. Have you got any clue as to what's been going on with his single lap pace? No, not really. No, it's it's um. I know it's frustrating for him and it's obviously frustrating for us, but you can't really put your finger on it. So, um, yeah, I think he, might, I don't know, he, his own internal expectation it might be a bit and he's just overdriving the car a bit maybe, but um, I don't know. It's it's hard to put a finger, finger on. If we knew, we'd, we would have fixed it by now. So, yeah. You've talked a lot about the team spirit over the past year, you know, through 2021 and, and into 2022, um, how well, you know, both sides of the garage work together and the engineers work together and the drivers work together. Um, how is, you know, having this little dip in form, particularly compared, it's probably, you know, like you say, the results were so good last year, particularly at the end of last year, that's probably makes it feel a bit more severe than it is. But is the team spirit hanging in there? Do you feel that, you know, that's helping the team sort of deal with a bit of a dip in form and can get you back on the right track? 
yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's all good. Like the team's charging on, and you know we've put a big focus on pit stops this year, and that's made a big difference. And um, you know we the team's just yeah charging forward. There's no no stress, no one's worried. Like we just just want to get back to winning races and stuff again. So you know, top fives aren't good enough anymore. We you know, our expectation is higher than that, and so is everyone else's. So, but yeah, there's definitely no heads hanging lower in it. Um, Obviously, a bit of head scratching for Will, and that's about it. But I'm not concerned. He's not concerned. He'll get it back. How are you feeling heading to Perth this weekend? It's a fairly unique circuit, which, you know, could shake the form up a little bit. Probably some question marks over tyre wear and that sort of stuff, given that it was a new surface a few years ago. But you haven't raced here in three years. What are your, what are your thoughts heading west? Yeah, it should be interesting. We've always our cars have seemed to go pretty good there in the past. And I think Will won his first ever Super Two race there, and they both know the track. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty confident we'll be we'll be pretty good there. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Now we've got these nice open borders everywhere, and we've got crowds back at at events and um, all that sort of stuff. But the sport is still dealing with the pandemic. Um, you missed some of the AGP weekend because you were a close contact. Uh, we saw some drivers test positive after the AGP. You know Shane Van Gisbergen and one of your guys, Brody Kostecki, as well. Is there kind of a, a constant concern that you know you'll lose a driver for a race weekend at some point, or you know key personnel in the team to the virus at some point this season? Yeah, I guess you've got to always consider that. And yeah, the rules are fairly relaxed now everywhere, apart from where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not really now. I don't, I don't think it's really a problem now. Most of the people that are getting sick now are just, just like a bad cold for a day or two and they get over it. So I guess the concern is if you get sick the day you're leaving and you can't get on the plane because you're coughing and sneezing or whatever. But I think um, if somebody gets sick and – they find out they've got COVID, we just, they just stay at home like we used to when we had our cold. So we, we, haven't, um, we haven't put too many strict measures in place for um, how we're going to deal with it. It's just, you know, the old school, if you're sick, don't come to work. Have you got a plan B for, you know, if, I mean, Brody's probably safe for a little while now if he's just had it, but, you know, if Will got it on the eve of a race meeting, have you got a plan B for, you know, who you'd put in the car or what you would do in that situation? Not really. Will had it a couple of months ago, so okay. over Christmas, I think. So, yeah, he's called, um, I suppose you call it, he's fully vaxxed and he's had it, so yeah, he's probably a low risk. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the crew, we've got we've got a good stable crew and we've got a good backup crew as well because you know, we've um, the way we've structured it now with some senior mechanics being crew chief and chief mechanic and not actually on a car, and you know, we could have two people go down and they've had to do it before those two, Brad and... Tremaine and Brad Packham, they can actually fill the fill the roles of someone that's sick. So we had one of our mechanics, Dave Gear, go down Saturday at the Grand Prix, so he couldn't come Sunday. So we've got guys that can just fill those roles straight away. So yeah, we've probably we've got a plan in place without knowing we've got a plan in place, I guess. Yeah. The experienced staff we've got. So it's probably almost a natural reaction after twenty twenty, you know, what we all went through yeah. then. You sort of build up these resistances to these challenges quite naturally yeah. because we've all dealt with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Let's look at the bigger picture of supercars a little bit. We're a few months into the new era of, you know, ownership, the new team charter system, new owners. What's your take on on how the sport's going and the direction that it's going in at the moment under the new ownership? Yeah, I guess I you haven't seen a I haven't seen a big change. Um it's 
probably a little bit less communication, if anything. Um, I think they're just the new owners, obviously Barclay, and they're just fighting their feet and they don't want to try and ruin something that's not really broken. Yeah. And I think they're just taking a gently, gently approach and he's got some good big, big plans of how he wants the sport to grow and I guess we'll just watch from the background and support him where we can or support supercars where we can to, to make sure we're all part of the growth. And Gen 3, it's obviously been an interesting build-up, to say the least, over the past couple of years, but are the teams generally satisfied now that things are heading in the in the right direction with those cars? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I don't want to say too, anything negative, but, I, I th- you know, it's hard to be totally positive because we still can't even start welding the cars together. Yeah. Um, it's very, very frustrating, but... Um, you know, they've had them on track for, what, two or 3,000 Ks now. So I think, yeah, you know, we're getting close to having a final product that we can start making. But it's, it's very frustrating that, you know, we should have been racing those things this year and we still can't even make one. So, um, yeah, they're doing a really good job and it's, it is tough. But, um, yeah, I would have liked to been, probably have chassis welded together now and starting to assemble them, but we're still a long way off that. But, um, yeah, it's still easily achievable for next year and I think the, the work they're doing now will make it that the car is actually ready to put together and race, not um, test, you know what I mean? So yeah. we're going to know the product's going to be ready to go. When do you anticipate that you will be able to will firstly start building but then actually run your own Gen 3 car for the first time? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be till December or January. Yeah. Yeah, I think that'll be the earliest anybody will be allowed to, whether – you can get them together before that or not. But, yeah, yeah I think that'll be definitely a, a strict approach where no one's going to get a, a leg up on anyone else. And, and the, the testing that they've done so far, it's been pretty good from what I've seen that no one's out there tuning them, trying to make them go faster. They're actually just making sure that the product's right mm-hmm. and um, it's ready to give to a team and the team to start adjusting it and tuning it. So. All right, let's take a look at what's happening around the world. Max Verstappen took a Grand Slam win at Imola for the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix with pole, the sprint race win, the race win and the fastest lap uh, ahead of his teammate Sergio Perez. Lando, Nar- uh, Lando Norris was third after Charles Leclerc threw away a podium with a late spin while trying to hunt Perez down. Daniel Ricciardo's race was ruined when he bounced over a curb at the start and made contact with Carlos Sainz at the first corner. Sainz was out the race at the spot. Uh, Ricciardo recovered to finish 18th. Uh, in Croatia, uh, Kali Rovanperä snatched WRC honours from Ottanik on the final stage. Rovanperä had led for a long time but lost the lead on the penultimate stage when he was caught out by rain, but he wrangled it back by beating Tanak by 5.6 seconds on that final stage. Fabio Quattarara now leads the MotoGP standings after winning in Portugal. It was the reigning champion's first win since Silverstone last August. Uh, Johan Zarco was second and Aleish Espagaro third. Jack Miller was fighting for third with Johan Mir, but crashed into the Suzuki rider while trying to execute a pass, which took them both out of the race. And at Talladega, Ross Chastain took a second NASCAR Cup Series win after running a low line on the final lap that helped him charge from third past Kyle Larson and Eric Jones to take victory. Uh, Stefan, let's have a bit of a chat about uh, Imola. It felt like after Albert Park that Ferrari really had this, this big upper hand and that there was this big result on home soil uh, 
really up for grabs. You know, Imola is actually closest to the Ferrari uh, factory, even though Monza is considered the sort of home race for Ferrari. But, you know, it kind of, it really didn't play out that way and they struggled at that home race. What's, um, I guess there's still so much sort of turbulent circuit to circuit right now in terms of, of form and it seems in those mixed conditions they they just couldn't quite get the tyres to switch on, um, which was the key, and that's what Red Bull was doing really well. That late uh, spin from Leclerc, is that is that a sign that maybe a bit of pressure was showing for the team being on home soil and, and, and in terms of the fact that they are sort of in control of their destiny in regards to the title? I mean, we often talk about how easy it is for someone with the fastest car to win a title, particularly through the lens of, say, Lewis Hamilton. But, you know, it's not that easy. And we had this conversation about Chaz Mostert a couple of weeks ago that you still have to go out and execute this stuff, even if you have the car that can potentially take you to the big prize. What do you reckon? Well, there was obviously a lot of expectation on Ferrari heading there. Um, and results-wise, it was a pretty big fail. But yeah, I think it showed that the, the gap between the Ferrari and the Red Bull was nowhere near as big as it looked at Albert Park. It's, it's as you say, it's getting the tyre in the right window and um, Red Bull managed to do that very well in qualifying and race trim uh, at Imola. In terms of the yeah the mistake that the Charles made in the race, it's it's one of those ones. Obviously, it's very costly in, in the championship, or it can be if they sort of minimise that in the end. But it can be very costly. But at the same time, it's hard to be too critical. I mean, he was pressing on, trying to turn third into second. That's what we want to see, isn't it? Not people settling for position, but having a go. Um, and and Imola is a more old school racetrack with consequences. Like he used too much curb and, and it bit him. Um, it's a place with big curbs, grass, and walls. And um, yeah, it's it's just cool to see uh, CF one at a track like that. It's one of the one of the good things that has come out of COVID is um, is seeing F one back at Imola. And uh, yeah, it's definitely not the result that the fans wanted, but uh, it certainly looked like a pretty good atmosphere there. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. It's a fantastic circuit. Not necessarily a great racing circuit, but it does just have all the right sort of aesthetics, you know. It, it looks like an old-school Grand Prix circuit. But I don't know. I just think that that's, that's maybe, you, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily see Hamilton make a, a mistake like that. You might have seen it from Verstappen a couple of years ago, but he's obviously grown a lot as a driver, particularly in the last sort of two seasons. But, yeah, it's interesting that it's not necessarily just that easy to execute with the right car. You can still make a mistake. But And, and I guess the, 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 the point you made about we don't want to see drivers settling for position, that's 100% right. I agree with that. But if you're the team, you go, well, what were you going to gain? Two points. You know, you have a big points lead. You know, the damage that could have been done. I mean, if that thing goes in the wall, then there's pretty significant damage to his to his title campaign. Um, he was lucky that that isn't how it played out. Um, I just think that there's maybe just a sign that, you know, there's still a bit of growing as a driver um, for Charles to do. Certainly not to say he's not going to win the championship this year because I still think he's definitely in the box seat to do that. Um, the Ricardo science clash at the first corner, what was your take on that one? I guess just to leave the the Charles thing as well, like Ferrari also could have settled for third. Like they decided to pit him to try to reset True. the the tyre situation to actually have a yep. crack at, at Perez. So they yep. kind of they'd laid the stage for that. Um, you definitely don't expect to see your driver make a mistake, but they they were aggressive. They were chasing it, um, and that's just how it ended up. But as as for the uh, science, Ricardo won. That's one of those first first corner things. I think you'd agree that's always gonna gonna happen. Like it's so tight in that first chicane, 
Um, Carlos left plenty of space uh, for Ricardo, and Ricardo's sort of he's tried to leave the space, and by doing so, he's bumped the curve and sort of got up into him. So I think um, that was all handled pretty well out of that. I mean, there was no penalty required, I don't think. And you know, Dan went down there and apologised afterwards, and and they all move on. It was um, obviously not what either of them needed. They're both under plenty of pressure, trying to chase their teammates at the moment, but. Um, They've just got to draw a line under that one and uh, and go again. Yeah, I think it's the same. Like if you compare it to, say, the Verstappen-Hamilton incident at the same corner last year in sort of similar conditions where Max didn't necessarily make a whole lot of effort uh, to get around the corner without understeering wide and sort of pushing Lewis wide, I think Dan definitely tried to get around the corner as tight as he could. He got up on the curb. You know, is it if you had to blame someone, would it technically be his fault? Probably because he's the one who slid wide and Carlos had left room. But you're playing a risky game when you're going to park yourself on the outside of the corner there, even if you are leaving room. So I think that's, you know, there was a, a calculated risk that didn't quite pay off for Carlos as well. So yeah, I agree. It would never warrant a penalty. Um, speaking of mistakes, uh, how about Jack Miller? Stefan, the chat is that the, you know, the clock is sort of ticking on his, on his time as a full blown factory. Ducati rider and that he could end up at Pramac or even back to LCR Honda next year. Uh, my mail from people who should know what is going on in the MotoGP paddock is that the Honda talks in Portugal that were reported were very real um, and that Pramac and LCR are the front-running options for Miller for next season. I mean, it all feels like a bit of a step back, um, but, you know, I think either way he would basically still be on a factory bike and uh, even ending up in, you know, a, a Cal Crutchlow LCR situation probably wouldn't be terrible for Jack, if things aren't necessarily going to plan perfectly right now. Stefan, what's your take on it? I mean, would losing the full-blown Ducati deal be a squandered chance or is the 2022 edition of MotoGP showing us that there are opportunities to win regardless of whether you're on the, the name brand bike? Yeah, on the surface, obviously, it's not a good thing to lose a factory ride if, if that does happen um, and go to a satellite or a smaller team. But as you say, MotoGP is very very mixed up and it's not like F1 if you're going from, you know, Red Bull being shuffled back to AlphaTauri or something like that. I mean, if you look at the Ducati situation at the moment, the 21 bike seems to be a fair bit better than the GP22, which um, is, I'm sure, frustrating for for Jack and those guys at the moment. So, you know, Ducati have been out there saying they want to keep him in their program somewhere. Um, So, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean... For me, a big part of it too is if that does happen, how the rider sort of responds mentally to it. And I think for some, it would it would sort of knock their confidence around to be demoted. But um, I, I don't know Jack personally, but he seems like the sort of character who would uh, who would really be out to prove a point in that situation and uh, and potentially uh, handle it pretty well. So um, yeah, I think there's definitely more more to come for his career. That's for sure. Absolutely. Oh, no, super fast rider, and I think Ducati and Honda both know that, uh, and I don't necessarily think it would be the, a little reset and just going somewhere else. Like I say, he'd be on a factory bike either way. Um, LCR, you're on the you're on a, a full-blown factory bike. Ducati, their sort of lines of evolution are a little bit different, so it's sort of, you know, for those for those sort of satellite teams that ebbs and flows a little bit, but still on pretty good equipment. So certainly not the end of the road for Jack if he does end up without the Ducati seat, but uh, interesting talking point all the same. All right, let's take a look in the Castrol mailbag. Now, Simon Ripper asked that, you know, with Newcastle and possibly Queensland Raceway 
uh, returning to the supercars calendar next year? Are any races at risk? Well, look, it's not just Newcastle and QR. There's this, you know, there's been talk of this Canberra thing. Um, plus, there was an interesting story in Auto Action last week with Supercars chairman Barclay Nettlefold confirming that that he's in talks with Formula One about Supercars appearing at more Grands Prix outside of the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, now, we've seen this before. Supercars was a support category for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in 2012, was it? Is that right? Uh, Nettlefold says that it would be potentially three races, including Albert Park. Singapore, you would always assume, would be an easy target. You know, perhaps the Middle East again as well. But, you know, if you start throwing all that into the mix, it's going to be tough to sort of retain the only true national sport thing that supercars sort of prides itself on by covering more of the country than most other codes do without dumping some local races somewhere along the way. Uh, Do you think that's fair to say, Stefan? Yeah, I mean, they've talked about doing up to 15, which leaves a little bit of room, supercars, mm-hmm. for um, for a little bit more. But, I mean, yeah, at the moment it sort of feels like we're just coming out of COVID and we're trying to reestablish it as a truly national sport going everywhere, going back to places like Perth for the first time in a couple of years. Um, but in terms of a, a bigger picture strategy, I mean, I really like this um, from supercars, the talk about international events. They put it... Back on the table from the first announcement of Shane Howard as as CEO, yeah, and um, it's easy to be skeptical and point to the past and say it won't work and this and that. But um, they need to look forward. They need to look for growth opportunities, and overseas races are exciting for for the industry. Uh, there's a lot more relevance now with Camaro and Mustang as opposed to the old Commodore Falcon product. Uh, as you say, Singapore is probably the most obvious. One, in terms of the location and the show supercars would put on there, if they can make the economics of that one work, I think it would tick all the boxes. Uh, Freight um, is the big issue when it comes to this stuff, the cost of that. Um, It's a big show supercars to move around, both in terms of equipment and and people. It's it's not cheap. Uh, And all of that's only really gotten more expensive, unfortunately, um, in the recent past. But again, if... If there's budget from events uh, that can foot the bill to have them come over, you you jump at it, surely. So do you think, you know, in terms of you're on the side of international growth is trying to tack on to Formula One events, you know, established Formula One events, is that better than trying to forge your own path and have standalone supercars events? I mean, I certainly know I was at an Abu Dhabi, a standalone Abu Dhabi event. You wouldn't say that the, there was hundreds of thousands of people streaming through the gates to get in there to just watch supercars. I mean, given the popularity of Formula One at the moment, is piggybacking onto that a good idea, even if it means you're just a support category? Well, yeah, I think so. And again, it comes down to um, whether there's promoters willing to pay for it. And, and Barclays put out there the fact that there's there's more F1 races now than ever and, and they need more support acts um, to prop up the show. Um, and certainly it's um, supercars would be in a position in those markets as being a very good product to entertain someone else's crowd, even if it's not strong enough in that market to to pull a crowd themselves. So, um, yeah, if there's opportunity there, um, that would definitely be a, a good outcome for sure. Yeah, I think so as well. I think that that, you know, that visibility can just never hurt. And, um, and I'm not sure that, yeah, that anyone should be wrapped up in letting go of that being the headline act thing. I don't think it's really worth, you know, it's it's running at a standalone event at an international circuit or even a, a, an Aussie circuit. You could insert any Aussie circuit in there saying, well, at least we're the headline act. Well, 
I'm not sure it's worth more than being, you know, at a Singapore or being at one of the big, bigger Middle Eastern races or even, you know, there's, there's, you know, if, if supercars want to go back to the US, we're going to end up with about 10 US Grand Prix at some point. So um, I think that there'd be, you know, there's all this sort of scope and all this opportunity. And traditionally, you know, that some of these races do struggle with support categories. So I think it really is a great opportunity for supercars if they can get it and they can get that balance uh, right. Okay, star of the week time. Stefan, who is your SOT dub this week? Well, heading back to MotoGP this week, I've gone with Fabio Quattararo for his victory in the Portuguese race. Um, MotoGP is known for its epic battles, but sometimes one rider is just on another level to everyone else, and Fabio certainly was that. On the weekend, he really turned his season around. Like up until now, there's it's been so bad at Yamaha. There was talk he was well, going to be off to Honda or, or whatever else, but um, seemingly out of nowhere, he leads the standings. So uh, pretty, uh, pretty good day for him. It has been such a bizarre season for MotoGP where you can just have that shocking season and then have a win and be you know leading the championship again. But that's the sort of the sort of roller coaster ride that category's on at the moment. Uh, I'm going to go with Sebastian Vettel for my star of the week. We talked after the Australian Grand Prix about how difficult that Aston Martin looks to drive, and you know when he, he said after Imola that eighth place felt like a victory, and I got to say I, I really believe him. Uh, the team boss Mike Crack says that you know, the team would be foolish to not try and keep keep Seb beyond 2022, and I think um, that his drive on the weekend proves that that is absolutely the case. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication and so much more for all sorts of makes, models and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.